0: Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. It's been a few weeks since I've been up here to preach. Had to have a little minor surgery, and by the grace of God, by all the prayers of you wonderful people praying for me and God answering those prayers, I am recovering textbook perfection. So, thank you. Thank you. It isn't without its discomforts, but uh, at the same time... um, I am very grateful to have been, shall we say, repaired, (laughs) at least to some extent. Well, I want to thank uh, once again Pastor Jim Davis for preaching a truly outstanding Father's Day sermon last (laughs) week. Thank you. And I also want to thank our assistant or associate pastor, uh, Rick Fulton. Sorry, I almost forgot your name there, Rick. That's kind of scary. You know, it's, some, I, this head has been knocked around so much, it's, it, it's pretty scary. I've gone to introduce my wife, and she can attest to this. I've gone to introduce my wife to someone and had to go, my wife. <laughs> so don't be shocked and surprised if I do a little stumbling and bumbling and uh, misspeaking. It's almost my trademark at this point. Uh, but anyway, I'm so happy to be back up here. And by the grace of God, you're going to get a good message this morning. Amen. 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 All right. Quick prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, again for all of this. I ask for your blessing on this. Help me to say the right words and not to say the wrong words. Help me to stay on track. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in the resurrection time. It is the very day of the resurrection that we are in right now. As you know, many of you know, if not all of you know, we have been going through the Gospel of John fairly slowly, you might say. We've been doing it since January of 22. We are now going to be closing the next to last chapter of the Gospel of John, and in fact, This is a resurrection account. This part is packed full. I'm going to let Scripture do a lot of the talking for me here. I hope you will agree with that strategy when I'm done. If you don't, you can insult me and send me nasty grams if you like. It's up to you. I can take it. I can take it. All right. Let us begin with verse 19 of John chapter 20. And now... We often read this together. You can read it with me aloud, or you don't have to. You can just sit there and listen. It's up to you. I'm going to try to read it correctly. (laughs) Now when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were together due to fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. Shalom Eliakim. Evening on that day, it's the Lord's Day, it's Sunday, that's the first day of the week. Okay, a lot of you know that. When the doors were shut, it's talking about, the words here indicate that the doors were not just closed, they were latched, probably locked. Why? Well, because they, it says, due to the fear of the Jews. Now, I've straightened this out many, many times, preaching through the Gospel of John. Everybody in that room was a Jew, <laughs> okay? So it wasn't for fear of themselves. When the Apostle John, who I believe wrote this, says, the Jews, it's not, he's not uh, making an anti-Semitic statement. They're all Jews. He's not self-hating Jew. This term he is using is about the Jewish leadership of the Sanhedrin. The Jewish leadership of that era of Judaism. They were not nice, decent people as a general rule of thumb. So they're living in fear. Why? Because their Lord and Savior, who they've, been, they've given the last three years of their life, given up everything to follow, has just died. And They don't know yet at this juncture, they will in a minute, spoiler alert, that Jesus has risen. So, suddenly, Jesus somehow, we don't know how, in his resurrected body, is standing in their midst. Doesn't say anything about opening the door or anything. We don't know how this happened. He'd be standing in their midst. And he says to them, peace be to you. Shalom Eliakim. Verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So often scripture is so understated. Don't you think? He has just suddenly appeared like he has been I almost hate to use this term. It seems a little sacrilegious. Like he's been beamed down from the starship Enterprise in their midst. I don't know if there was that funny little noise of sound effect that they make on Star Trek. I'm pretty sure there wasn't. I don't think they would have gotten that anyway. But the fact is, put yourself in that situation. Suddenly the Lord appears in your midst. So when it says that they rejoiced, I would, you know, I wasn't there. I can't find it in the Bible, but I would just about guarantee you that they were, wow, and making all kinds of noise. And so he's basically saying, not only is he greeting them, shalom, that's another, you got to realize that pretty much all of them scattered when Christ went to the cross. So they might have thought for a second, if this really is the Lord, he's not very happy with them. Can you imagine? They ran away. But that's not what he says. And when he said this, what did he do? He showed them both his hands, probably right here, this was considered part of the hand, and his side, right there, where a sword had been thrust into his chest on the cross, to just double check and make sure that he was dead. And if he hadn't been dead before that, he would have been dead at that, because you know. When you stick a sword into somebody's heart, they tend to die. Uh, You probably knew that. So they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, What? Peace be to you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. (laughs) I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus isn't saying, Hey, dudes, what's going on? He's not socializing. He has first and foremost let them know He's declared peace. And what He has just done on the cross has made peace between the Father and His people. How did He do that? He took the wrath of God on the cross for all the sins, past, present, and future, of all those who would come to believe, who would come to believe, who would be in Christ, who would be saved. He took all of that. Can you imagine? Past, present, and future. All of human history from the beginning all the way to the end. He did all that. And now he's saying, Peace be to you. But then very quickly he says, Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Well, I want you to understand and recognize for those of you who don't know, have you ever heard of the Great Commission? By show of hands, everybody heard of the Great Commission? The Great Commission is most famously in Matthew chapter 28, and we'll go right there right now. This is just before Jesus rises, ascends to heaven, and he says to the disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to follow all that I commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What we just read in John is essentially that. So he's gotten right down to business. Just as the father sent me. Well, how did the father send him? The father sent him into the world. He was eternally existent as the second person of the Trinity in heaven. And he came down into the world. Why? To seek and to save the lost. Okay? And, very obvious, I know, but it has to be said, he made disciples. He chose disciples and he made disciples. And he said, just as the Father sent me I am sending you. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Well, <clears throat> some want to say, before I, let me ask you, do you, all of you know what this means? He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit what happened the Bible doesn't tell us what happened does it there's nothing there's no nothing magical nothing powerful nothing dramatic that happened here in this moment the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us what is going on here I want to suggest to you that this is a foreshadowing of what is going to happen in Acts chapter 2 some of you may know Acts chapter 2 Acts chapter 2, known as the Day of Pentecost. It was a pretty dramatic time. It's in the very next book of the Bible, in the second chapter, if you want to check it out. It's pretty good. Again, I'm doing a little bit of understatement here, all right? It is not unusual, first and foremost. Jesus, one thing you need to remember about Jesus, he's the second person of the Trinity. He was God before he became a man. But he is also described throughout scripture as a prophet, a priest, and a king. In John chapter 17, he made it very clear in his praying for the disciples that were then and there with him, as well as those of us who are following him now, he was acting in his prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer because he was acting as our high priest, the go-between, the mediator between us and the Father. Praying for us. But in this particular case, this act of breathing the Holy Spirit on them, saying, Receive the Holy Spirit, this is a symbolic act or even an object lesson, as would often have been done by Old Testament prophets. They did these things that seemed a little weird. In fact, most of the prophets were a little weird, wouldn't you say? Those of you who know, they were a little weird. So it's okay. It's okay. In fact, I know a YouTube guy that says, Weirdos Unite pretty sure he's not a believer so some point out that the Savior what the Savior actually said was receive Holy Spirit rather than receive the Holy Spirit and they conclude from this that the disciples did not receive the Holy Spirit in all his fullness not its fullness his fullness the Holy Spirit is a person and described as a male person even though he has no body has no body It says that uh, they conclude that they didn't receive the Holy Spirit in his fullness at this time, but only some ministry of the Spirit. We don't know what that is. Scripture doesn't spell it out clearly. But stop and think about this. These guys have been through a major trauma. Jesus said, I will not leave you nor forsake you. Forsaking someone is leaving them in a nasty situation and being ill-equipped to do anything about it. I believe he gave them some foretaste of the Holy Spirit. There was, whether it be uh, a greater knowledge of the truth or power or guidance for their mission, um, it is said by most scholars that they received a guarantee or foretaste of the Holy Spirit. Oops, before I move on to that, Luke 24:44 through49 is another case in the Gospels of the Great Commission, the Great Commission, 44 through 49, Jesus said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you, listen closely, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses, first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. How many of you know that the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ? How many of you know that Jesus is God? That he always has been God? He was God when he was on earth as a human being? He was God and man fully each? Okay? So he says that the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled, what was written about him. Then... He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Who else could do that but God? He opened their minds to understand the scripture. Has that ever happened to you? Some of you who have been reading the Bible for a while, like me, maybe you've been around a while, have you ever opened the scriptures, and I'm going to ask for a show of hands, read a familiar piece of scripture, and suddenly had something be revealed to you that you hadn't noticed before? Okay, I'm pretty sure it's about the same thing going on here. These guys had heard the scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures were being read, but they were seeing it in a particular light, the way the teachers were showing them. Jesus is revealing to them the full truth of the scriptures. So now they're going, oh, you ever have one of those moments? Oh, well, and he said to them, so it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. What has just happened? He suffered and died, and he's just risen on the third day. This is the third day right here that we're talking about. All right? Verse 47, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name. Whose name? Jesus, the Christ that forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Beginning from Jerusalem. Where are they now? Jerusalem. Okay? Verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. Who? Who are witnesses of these things? The folks who are there on the spot are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father capital F, God the Father, upon you. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, breathing of the Holy Spirit. You know that the breathing out of the Holy Spirit, that's reminiscent from Genesis 2, verse 7, of God breathing life into Adam. You know that? It's also from Ezekiel 37, I think, if I remember correctly. But anyway, I digress. No rabbit trails this morning, Stan. Let's try to keep it straight. I'm going to do my best. There's so much here, so, so much here. And he said, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but, but, what's the big but here? You are to stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. So, stop and think about this. He's clearly making a statement. He's made statements that, the breathing out of the Holy Spirit here is not the full delivery. It's not the full package of the Holy Spirit on his disciples. In Luke, uh, excuse me, Acts 1, 4, and 5, it says, Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Jesus says, Which you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So he's giving a foreshadowing, a foretaste, a declaration. It is clear from John chapter 7, verse 39, that the Spirit could not come in his fullness until Jesus was glorified. That is, until he had gone back to heaven, because he says that there. For this ministry, Jesus provided the Holy Spirit and the commission, remember, we mentioned the Great Commission, and the commission, to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. Do you know that we have that same mission? They had the mission. We have the mission. To proclaim the forgiveness of sins. These are linked together for a new ministry, the Holy Spirit and the commission. This was the initial announcement of which Pentecost was the historic fulfillment. Fulfillment. The descent of the Spirit on the church at Pentecost brought the proclamation by Peter to his hearers when Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. So, how are sins forgiven? By believing and obeying Jesus. There's nothing magical or supernatural about being baptized. It is a public declaration. But why is it important? Scripture says it's important. It's one of the ordinances. It's important, but it's not supernaturally important. The thief on the cross who died next to Jesus, he wasn't baptized. He didn't have the opportunity. He had an exemption, shall we say. Special circumstances, shall we say. But Jesus still said to him, This day you will be with me in where? Paradise. 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 This very day, he said to that thief. So repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, verse 28. The words of Jesus emphasize that the Holy Spirit is bestowed on the church. Why? To empower an effective application of the work of Christ. Just as the Father sent him, he is sending his disciples. And just as the Father sent him and he sent those disciples, he is also sending us. To do what? We just read it. To seek and save the lost, to go and make disciples. All right. Let me pick up the pace here a little bit. Verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. This is another difficult verse. You should know, for those of you who have been in the Catholic Church, and I, I don't know how many here are have been in that history, but I can tell you that the Catholic Church believes that this, Jesus was giving apostolic authority here so that essentially they... The Catholic Church uh, interprets this as the church having the power to forgive sins or to refuse to forgive sins. I'm here to tell you that's not the case. It's not true. It's wrong. How can I say that? Well, let me just throw a couple of things at you, all right? Um, got to get my eyeballs on the right place in my notes. I hope you can be patient with that. <laughs> um, the, two, the term used here, um, I'm still getting myself lost, uh, about which there has been a great deal of controversy on this verse. One view is that Jesus actually gave his apostles and their supposed successors the power to forgive or retain sins. This is in direct contradiction of the Bible teaching that only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. So what is he saying here? Well, in Luke, first in Luke 5, verse 21, the power promised and the authority given is in connection with the preaching of the gospel, announcing on what terms sins would be forgiven. And if these terms are not accepted, sins would be retained. In other words, you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that baptism that I said was so important that is your first public act of obedience. Obedience. Why is obedience important? It is a public profession, not only of your faith, but your faith is strong enough that you will do what Jesus says, that you will obey him as what? Lord. Kyrios is the word. The word is not always used, kyrios as Lord, as, an, as a title of deity. It is used other ways as well. But many, many, many times, especially when it's tied with Lord and God, it is a title of deity. It is a title of deity. Let's look at that verse, verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 21 in Luke. Read with me if you will. The scribes and the Pharisees began thinking of the implications, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins except God alone? <laughs> Jesus had just forgiven the sins of a man who'd been lowered through the roof. It's in Luke chapter 5, that story is, and it's also in Mark chapter 2. You can look at it. Now, there's so many times I've heard people say, the Bible never says, Jesus never said he was God. Oh, really? Are you reading the same Bible I am? Are you interpreting it somebody's, anybody tells you that Jesus never said in the Bible that he's God, that he never said that, they're lying to you. Flat out, not pulling any punches, it's a lie. The very reason they wanted to kill him is because they thought he was committing blasphemy. Well, there's a whole other load of reasons, too. They were darkness, he was light. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, who was called Didymus, because he was a twin, was not with them when Jesus came the first time. Okay? So, we're setting up for Thomas. But before I move on to that, um, the disciples, speaking of the forgiveness part, the disciples go out preaching the gospel. Some people repent of their sins and receive the Lord Jesus. The disciples are authorized to tell them, by what Jesus has told them, that their sins have been forgiven. If you receive Christ as your Savior, your Lord and Savior, your sins are forgiven. But if you refuse to repent, if you refuse to admit that you have to be saved because you are a sinner, because you have sinned, the wages of sin is death, says the Bible. If you refuse that, the disciples are authorized to tell those folks, you folks, any one of you who refuses to believe that you're a sinner and need to be saved, that you will die in your sins and you will perish eternally. I, it makes me emotional just to say that. But that's the truth. It's the truth. If you refuse to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will die in your sins eternally. So I have to tell you that. That is my duty. All right? So, like I said, verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve, one of the is the twin, was not with them the first time around. Verse 25. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. I didn't mean to make the back, did I mess that up? Okay, thought I made some noise there a little bit too much. We've seen the Lord, exclamation point. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands. the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, if you knew, and you had seen the dead body perhaps, or you'd heard the report all over the place, that Jesus was dead, had seen him carted off, you'd heard all the testimony that we've read about already, would you think, having not seen him, oh yeah, sure. Well, Thomas, this is not wishful thinking. This is, it's, it's amazing how the Lord in his divine providence has built in an apologetic against that, the argument of those that say, well, the disciples just wishful thinking. They clearly, if you read, go back just a little bit, they clearly, a little bit in this very chapter, They didn't think he had risen. When the ladies came to him, Mary and and the other Mary and some other ladies came to him and said, the Lord is risen. Mary Magdalene, I mean, Jesus revealed himself to the women first, the risen Savior. And the other disciples, eh, they didn't believe it, okay? so Thomas, not having been there, has done nothing different than the other disciples had done. But he is being separated out here as an object lesson. Remember, our Father in heaven, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are ever and always the greatest teachers who have ever existed. They are teaching us a lesson in here. They're often teaching us lessons. Oftentimes we don't like those lessons. It makes us uncomfortable, makes us feel foolish, makes us feel weak. Moronic sometimes. It can do all kinds of things. But they're doing it for our good. And their glory, meaning they want us to see their glory. They're revealing themselves to us. And the same thing is happening here. Something is being revealed. In John chapter 11, verse 16, it says this. Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let's also go so that we may die with him. Before you say that Thomas, remember, they were getting, he was getting ready to go do what? To raise Lazarus, right? he so Getting ready to go to raise Lazarus, or was that something else? I'm going to leave that mystery for you to figure out. John chapter 11. You have a homework assignment. John chapter 11, all right? But Thomas, the point here, he's, he's not a chicken. He's saying very boldly, I'm ready to go and die. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut once again and stood in their midst and again says what? Peace be to you. Shalom. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, place your finger here and see my hands. Take your hand and put it into my side. And do not continue in disbelief, but be a believer. Is he chewing Thomas out here? He is not. Why? What is his concern? Remember, Jesus said, I will not leave you nor forsake you. Those who are in him, those who are believers in him, followers of him, he is not, you know that story with the good shepherd? That if there's one that's lost, Jesus will go after that one sheep. It's kind of what he's doing here. Okay? So, don't continue in disbelief, but be a believer. Next verse. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you now believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. There are those who did not get to see Jesus. There were lots and lots who did, though, over 500 on one occasion. I'm not going to list all the occasions of Jesus' appearances. I would like to, but I promise to keep this brief today, and so I am going to keep it brief. But I also do not want to blow over very, very vitally important things that you need to know. Okay, so imagine Thomas being there and suddenly Jesus says to Thomas the very same words he said when Jesus wasn't there. Another sign that Jesus is God. So anyway, Lord and God appear together repeatedly in the Septuagint. That's the Greek, the first translation of Holy Scripture. The Greek Septuagint is the Old Testament translated into Greek. Lord and God appear together repeatedly as divine titles. And they're included in forms similar to my Lord and my God or God and Lord. It's all through the Old Testament. Look at this, John chapter 10, verse 33. Read with me, if you will. The Jews answered him, We are not stoning you for a good work, but for a blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Okay, why am I bringing this up? Because Jesus was, is, always has been, never at any point in time did he ever stop being, even for a moment, God. And he was making claims to be God. There's an argument from that case right there. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know what that's called? The Shema. The Shema. Jews knew it by heart. They said it all the time. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Thomas' confession of Jesus as his Lord and God confirms the references to Jesus as God. Right here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The very first verse of this very gospel, John's gospel, in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. One God. I and the Father are one. Okay? This is one of the clearest New Testament texts on the deity of Christ, with Thomas making this claim. Some false religious cults try to explain this away by arguing that Thomas's statement was merely an exclamation of astonishment, that in effect, He took God's name in vain. You know that's what the Muslims like to say? That he actually swore in the presence of of his Lord and Savior. Do you think that's very likely? No. That argument is ludicrous on its face. makes no sense whatsoever. Such an explanation is unthinkable. However, given the strong Jewish moral convictions of the day, given that, because Thomas said these words to him, that is, to Jesus, this is Thomas because some people trying to shoot holes in this are saying that Thomas wasn't speaking directly to Jesus. But he was in fact. If you look at the text, Thomas is speaking directly to Jesus and Jesus is responding directly to Thomas. We just read it. Here's another one. 2 Peter 1.1. Read with me if you will. Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, let me back up and just read from the last bit of this. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So do you think Peter, who wrote that book, thinks that Jesus is God? Titus 2, 13. Read with me, if you will. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. You think the author of that thinks that Jesus is God? Yeah. There's tons and tons I could have a bunch of these up here but I just want to show enough to drive home the point why do I do that just last year Ligonier Ministries took a poll of what they believed were evangelical Christians evangelical Christians now the definition of that's getting a little squishy in recent years but evangelical Christians are supposed to believe that Jesus is God according to that latest poll taken just last year 43% of those polled claiming to be evangelical Christians did not believe Jesus was God. Why do you think that is? They probably came from churches that are afraid to offend people who don't believe Jesus is God, and so they don't teach it. Or the church assumes that people know this. Well, in case you hadn't noticed, I assume nothing. I pound upon the most hardcore basic fundamentals because most, shouldn't even say most, 43% is not most, but a really shockingly high percentage of so-called evangelical Christians don't seem to have a clue about the truth of the Jesus Christ they are supposed to be placing their faith in. I used to say this repeatedly when I first started the Gospel of John teaching. If you believe in a different Jesus other than the one that is described in the pages of Holy Scripture in the Bible, your Jesus can't save you. If you believe in a Jesus that isn't God, your Jesus can't save you. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is not God. You know what that means? As long as they believe that, they are not saved, to put it rather colloquially and maybe not Reverentially enough, they're toast. They're toast. You either believe in the real Jesus from the real Bible and what the Bible says about it, or you will die in your sins and spend eternity in the in just horrendous fires of what place called hell. Now, I I I don't want to be a bummer here. I don't want to rain on your parade what kind of a friend, what kind of a preacher would I be if I did not tell you the truth? Jesus must be your Lord. Why? Because he's God. If he's not your Lord and you don't think of him as God, you're following some imaginary Fig Newton of somebody's imagination. Yeah, I know. Dumb old joke. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10 says this. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10 For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in Salvation. salvation. What does that say in there? Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. I'm not making this up, people. For a long time, I was under the misgiven idea that Jesus could be my Savior, but I didn't have to do what he said. And you know what? I was the most miserable so-called Christian on earth because I didn't get it. I came to learn that when you accept Jesus as Lord and begin following him, he fills you with joy. He gives you the power to do that. Why? Because you have real salvation. Prior to that, you don't. Okay? I'm sorry if I'm getting a little too harsh for some of you. Which is why I've sometimes referred to this as the church of the painful truth. If you have not yet believed this, if you have not yet understood this, you need to. Why? Because your eternal soul is at stake. The Bible is absolutely crystal clear, 100%. Jesus is Lord and God. And who just said it? Thomas. Thomas said it. Now we come to the tail end and I'm about to close. I'm actually doing fairly well, I think, at getting done at a reasonable time. Thank you, Lord. We asked and he answered. All right, quit flapping your gum stand and get it done. Why this gospel was written. Why was it written? Well, it says right here, the last two verses of this chapter. So then... Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What is implied here is if you don't believe that, you do not have life in his name. You have biological life, but if you don't believe that and the stuff I've talked about previously, you do not have eternal life. I'm making it clear. I don't want anybody to say when they get to eternity, Pastor Stan didn't tell me. Okay? And we are done. So how do I close? Well, let me read you something I read from Charles Stanley's, one of his study Bibles. He says this. Thomas reminds us of the similarities between doubt and faith. Both originate from the same place. A confrontation with the unknown. You know that? Think about that. Doubt and faith originate from the same place. A confrontation with the unknown. Doubt concedes defeat. Doubt says, meh, but faith claims the victory. Are you going to live in eternity in your doubt? I'm not telling you that it's bad to have doubt. The difference is you resolve it. Scripture can be understood. We'll be going into classes here starting in the fall and ongoing where you will learn, not, not only will we study the Bible together, together, we'll do it together, not just going to give you homework and say, show up with answered questions, we're going to study the Bible together, but in the course of that, I'm going to teach you how to do it right, to know that you're, interpre- that you're reading and interpreting and applying scripture properly. The truth is knowable, and the truth will set you free. So anyway, I get back to Charles Stanley. When Jesus appeared to Thomas, hope became reality. When Jesus appeared to Thomas, hope became reality. The resurrection renewed his confidence in God and motivated him to spend the rest of his life proclaiming the certainty of the risen Christ. Tradition holds that Thomas, this is the guy that so many people call him Doubting Thomas. Well, he was believing Thomas, wasn't he? Thomas spread the gospel to India and helped dispel others' disbelief about the resurrection. If uncertainties, and this is for you, listen up, just another couple of minutes and we'll close. If uncertainties have smothered your confidence in the Lord, remember his power so evident in the empty tomb. The crucifixion was not the end of the story. At the beginning of this passage that we read today, his disciples thought it was the end of the story, didn't they? It wasn't. In fact, it was pretty close to the beginning. All right? So the crucifixion is not the end of the story. And let me tell you something, this is for you, listen up. And neither is the trial you face. At any given time in this room, somebody is facing a major trial. If you're not facing a trial now, at some point in the past, you have faced a major trial. And if that still doesn't apply to you, well, let me give you another little sharp burning truth. There is a major trial ahead of you, even if you've never had one. Even if you're a little child, there is a major crisis of faith, a major trial in your life ahead. But I don't want to scare you. Because I just want you to wake up and realize that if you choose the path of faith and declare that triumph lies just ahead of you and allow Jesus' resurrection to strengthen your hope and renew your certainty and be your greatest victory, that is, for all of eternity. That's what I leave with you from Pastor Charles Stanley. I hope you got it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, you are so good, and we are so, so grateful that you have provided us, for us, an eternity with you. You have saved us from our sins if we will but accept it. And Father, I pray in Jesus' name, that if there is anyone in this room who has not yet done so, that you do so today. There are tracts, there are gospels of John out in the, in, the, in the hallway. There are plenty of people here that would be happy to talk with you about it. I do not want you to go away having any question, any doubt, whether or not you are in the kingdom, whether or not you are saved, whether or not you are going to go to heaven. We got all kinds of people here and resources here to help you with that. I'm asking, Father, that you bless them mightily in this endeavor. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.